Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 121 on N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined today by that second-person narrator, Hoy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we are also joined today by the founder and director of I Need Diverse Games, creator and creative director of Into the Motherlands, cast member of Rivals of Waterdeep and the Black Dice Society, and the game designer behind the upcoming Broken Earth RPG, Tanya DePass. Tanya, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Hi, Tanya. Great to meet you. Hello, Hua. (laughs) (laughs) Hua. I like it. You're so so much fancier now. Just today. (laughs) With my pale white eyes. (laughs) (laughs) So I would love to know, what is your history with uh, role-playing games? What is your history with fantasy, science fiction, horror, literature? Tell me about all this stuff. Oh, so it's funny because um, earlier today I, I did a, a more gaming-focused uh, podcast, and we got into this whole conversation. And I realized I was someone who was lucky enough to grow up in a house full of books you know, I probably read The Exorcist way before I should have, read a lot of sci-fi, got taken to see the original Star Trek film, uh, you know, Star Wars, all that stuff in the theater. And, you know, one thing we had was books because, I, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but books were always there. Horror was a genre that I didn't get into too much because I, I feel like the written, well-written horror is far more terrifying than a movie or anything could be. And then a lot of horrors started to turn basically into gore porn of just how much blood and guts and gore can we show you or, or tell you about? So Hell I yeah. Of, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like, and, and, and it's probably more on the visual side of it than books. Because, again, well-written horror yeah. will stick with you. Because um, I don't think it was a book first, but do you remember the movie where it was Tom Cruise? It was, oh, it was Remake of War of the Worlds, I think. The Spielberg one, where, yeah. <laughs> where you finally see the aliens, but it's like a, a shaky cam. It's someone hiding in their apartment, and you, and that gap between the floor and the door, and you just see like the inhuman foot walking by. That kind of stuff is great horror to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with fantasy and sci-fi, you know, grew up with Tolkien, grew up with Cimmerillion. But then I started finding people like Nadia Korafor, Octavia Butler, Nora, N.K. Jemison, and it made me realize that a lot of the world building I grew up with was lacking, mm. mostly lacking melanin yeah. and people like me, <laughs> people like Nora. Um, but I've always been a big reader more than anything else. And as I got older, you know, between time, work, life, I became more of a, a digital reader, gamer, things like that. Yeah. And even when you, when we go back to uh, some of the, some of the roots of science fiction and fantasy, even when we were blessed to have a protagonist with melanin, they were often not portrayed that way in the art. Suddenly, Eric John Stark, or um, or I'm suddenly forgetting his name. Hoy, what's the main wizard from A Wizard of Earthsea? Ged. Ged. And suddenly, Ged and Eric John Stark are now blonde hair and blue eyed. Yeah. In the artwork, even yeah. though they're explicitly not in the text. 
I mean, we went through that with um, the girl from Hunger Games. Yes, and yeah. now and now the new um, the TV adaptation of I'm blanking on the books, but everyone who's mad about the girl being black. Yeah, it's the Percy Jackson books. Is yes, that correct? Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and there's a lot of people where, especially, you know, with the Hunger Games book, the girl was described as black. Exactly. Right. She actually was black in the book. Right. True. So, right. And then, and yeah. then the, the protagonist, Katniss, is potentially Native American, as she's described, because she's, you know, described with, although she's never explicitly, you know, spelled out. Mm. Um, and so that was a potential whitewash there to, in people's mental conception, you know. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, you know, do that. They don't think of a character as anything but like themselves. And then when people of color do it, when black folks do it specifically, there are people that will get very upset. They'll get very angry. Um, a good friend of mine does a lot of cosplay and, you know, did a lot more in the last couple of years pre-COVID. And she's got this really amazing cosplay of her as Velma. And Christina shared it. I forget why she shared this older cosplay photo, but there are people turning themselves into knots about Velma's not black. And it's like, but she's she's wearing her hair. And she's exactly. <laughs> it's like people who freak out about black Santa Claus. And it's like, get a grip. Santa Claus. Sorry, listeners, Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> Santa's not real, but also Jesus probably wasn't as pale white as people want to portray right. he's How from the middle you? east <laughs> i know your show is going to get burned to the ground now sorry not sorry at all jesus christ was from norway <laughs> the way some the way that those are the people who worship odin and i should know um I was, I was told to go back and worship my african gods when i said that i would uh followed a nordic path so oh wow yeah so I'm curious, what would you what what works of fiction would you recommend that our listeners check out for inspiration for their gaming? Um, mostly things from Nydia Core for, especially like Bintu, um, a lot of Octavia Butler's work, which, you know, anything from Octavia Butler, A, take with a grain of salt, because a lot of it is just like it's it was way ahead of its time, but also there are books of hers that I've read where I'm like, should I be otherwise not impaired, but should I indulge in herbal treats before I read this book? Because <laughs> some of it just really messed with my head. Like, the bluest eye messed me up because I probably was too young when I read it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Scalzi's new book, uh, Kaiju Preservation Society, is great because it's very tongue-in-cheek. I like it. And, you know, obviously, Nora's other writing, and K. Jemison, the other two books in the series that we're going to talk about today, and uh, her the Dreamblood duology, I think, would be fantastic as a setting as well. Very cool. So now we can go ahead and start chatting about N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season. And we'll start by talking about which edition of the book we are working with. Hoy, what are you working with today? Um, I have the Kindle edition, uh, which I was lucky enough to grab. Uh, just as we found out that the show was, uh, we this was picked for the episode, it went on sale. So, <laughs> um so I'm very happy because if I try to get this from the library, I'd, I'd probably be waiting. The Brooklyn Public Library has like a six-week waiting list for the ebook on it. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, she's very, very popular in the Brooklyn and New York Public Library system. Yeah. Uh, I, too, use the Kindle edition because I've realized as I get older, it a recipe for disaster is sitting on the couch with a book. 
Because suddenly you'll, you'll look up and it's, it's two in the morning and I've fallen asleep in this book. Not because it's boring, but because I equate relaxation with reading a book on the couch now. Nice. So me and the Kindle edition have been good friends last week. Nice. And I read the Orbit paperback, which I've got here in my hands. This is the one that I think a lot of people who've read this are likely to have worked with. And I've this one here is the... Um, since first edition is August 2021. Oh, this is the 22nd printing from 2021 in my hands here. But also I listened to the Audible audiobook that was narrated by Robin Miles. So I, I did both of those. Uh, the, the audiobook was uh, lovely at 1.5 speed. Uh, and uh, the cover of the edition I'm working with is just kind of, it looks like it's just like a photograph of just like some stonework. I don't know. It's not not super evocative. I feel like we could have gotten a cooler cover for this story, but whatever. It's fine. It's not, it's, it's not terrible, but it's just not very exciting. Yeah. I, I have no idea how choosing a cover for a book actually works. Like who makes the final say? Does the author get any input in it? It's rare that the author has any input at all. Oftentimes mm. authors are find out when the press release comes out what the artwork oh, is yeah. oh wow <laughs> you know and there's trends in the, the art direction so lately everything yeah. is very much um you know photoshop um you used to be able to get these people who did very painterly stuff and and, and there'll be fights between the authors and art directors and like the, you know the art oh, directors. yeah oh this is we we know that this is what sells and then the, the author is like yeah but this does not actually have anything that has to do with my book <laughs> you know? yeah so yeah all right, and Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day? We do. It's the obvious choice. Orogeny. Orogeny, uh, which uh, a lot of us thought was a made-up word, but it is actually a real word. It means the process in which a section of the Earth's crust is folded and deformed by lateral compression to form a mountain range. But in this case, in the book's use, it is essentially the system of magic or superpowers that involves manipulation of earth and other forces in this book so orogeny nice all right so now we're in the library uh tanya what are your thoughts on the fifth season so it's interesting as i was rereading it and i was making some notes parts of me were like i read this and at the time the book was released you know it was you know it was partially you know oh, my friend wrote a dope book. I love what she writes. And then there was also the, oh my God, were you okay when you wrote this? Um, But there are just parts of it, especially the, you know, with the, um, let me make sure I'm calling them the right one, the the cast that is basically used to breed um, and the the origins when they are, you know, paired up forcibly with Mm -hmm. thinking about now rereading it today of all days and Mm -hmm. talking about this thinking about the forced breeding and things like that with the climate of reversing Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also just the ways in which it's very clear that everyone in this book is a person of color and allegory for, for black people just straight up described as black and dark skin, but yet there's such cruelty and you know how the origins just literally say we're not human. Where mm-hmm. they're told from the moment their power manifests that they're evil and they're not human and that they're basically whisked away to what is a prison. The way mm-hmm. is the way that I write it. It's for their own good, 
but it's still a gilded cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's Hogwarts as a prison camp. Yeah, but I'd rather not, you know, refer to anything as Hogwarts because of the of the term yes. slider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's you know it's very telling, especially with what's going on in today's climate, today's political climate. It felt almost like. Did you have a crystal ball when you wrote this? Because there's just some ways in which, you know, people use each other. The very, I guess, Southern bless your heart ways some of the characters interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And and it, I, I'm ashamed to admit this, but it took me a long time to realize Essen, Demaya, Cyanite were all the same person. Mm-hmm. Just at different phases of their story and their life until the very end. And I was like... Oh, okay. That's, oh, this is bad. Because I really thought I was reading about three or at least two separate people for the longest time until I got for almost to the end again. Mm. And overall, I, I love it. But it was it was a harder read than I expected because of the climate today. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Hoy? What did you think? Um, yeah, I think it picked up a couple resonances. One very specifically as of this week, which is that initial report on the Native American schools and the forced mm. the forced um, separation of families and children into that. And we kind of, I kind of had been following a little bit of that as you know, ca- Canada has been a little bit ahead of the United States in talking about what ha- what had happened there. Uh, but now this is official report, and you know the separation, the. Uh, both the intentional and unintentional violence that was visited upon uh, these children. Um, and that very much paralleled what was happening with the origins when they're brought into this academy and, and you know, completely separated from their original uh, communities. And so again, I, I would, I would imagine that NK Jemison knew of this, but it's still something that's very prescient to bring into a text um, yeah. and, and with the, the kind of resonances we have now. Um, I also, um, I think a lot of people, uh, Tanya, had that same thing of not being a little slow to twig, like where the story is going because of not only are the characters different, but the narrative styles they're using for each character are different, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of people really struggle. I personally struggled with the second person parts initially until about halfway through the book. And then I said, okay, now I'm into the rhythm of it. You know, Yeah, it, it wasn't even the second person part. It was more the storytelling for each version of this person is so unique i was like oh we're seeing their formation at this academy and being literally given away by their mother and this is the person they turned into and we've just seen this shift because i i didn't realize it that it was jumping back and forth i really read it kind of very linearly at first and then the second reading i was like oh okay now i get it yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading this book. There was a lot to like about it, and I'm excited to continue on with the series at some point. Um, I, I thought the characters were great. I also, I, I mean, I would imagine it was the author's intention that we didn't realize that those are the same characters. Mm-hmm. I, I My impression was that she wanted us to think that those were three different characters. And for the longest time I did, and I kept being like, oh, when is like Cyanite going to meet Demaya? Because we know that like they're going to have to start hanging out at some point. But I, I know that um, one of the things they say is like the, when you know that a, a plot twist it was really effective is when you find out at the same time the characters do. And I will say I did figure it out 
earlier than it was revealed, but not significantly earlier. So I still feel like it was done very effectively. I'm I the thing though is I'm still not a huge fan of the the use of the second person narrative for mm-hmm. Essen's storyline. Um it just it 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 kind of took me out of it. Although it was interesting when she, when it said you are 42 years old and I was like I I am, you're right. How did you know that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so me and Essen are the same age. Right. But um but yeah, overall I I really enjoyed reading it and thought there was a lot of a lot of very cool stuff going on here. Right. Uh, so you had mentioned, and I just want to harp on the second person thing, because it's an unusual choice. And, and a lot of times, you know, um, uh, writing workshops and whatever will say, hey, never use the second person because it's just it's just like very alienating. It's a very risky move. And then we had sort of talked in our, um, Tanya, we have a book club for some of our Patreons who can come on before the show and discuss the book, um, mm-hmm. our Patreon uh, supporters. And um, a couple of our, get, our uh, patrons are, are very much into researching around the book so they they read up on on uh, nk jameson and, and her background in you know as uh, doing uh, therapy and other stuff I said oh and so th- that kind of twig that that second person is also how damaya cyanide as soon is also dissociating especially after a particularly traumatic thing of losing mm. now her second child right yeah. that she's lost um, so it makes sense as a narrative choice, but it's initially something that you have to like, you have to earn this book. This book is not just going to be like, here it is all for you, you know, in a yeah. way. Yeah. And another thing I really liked about this is, uh, you know, Tanya, you were talking about the use of, um, origins as, um, as a way of exploring issues of race. Also, I feel like it was a really interesting intentional or unintentional exploration of queerness as well, or being the other in plain sight. This idea that because origins are people who can walk around living their life without anybody knowing that they're this thing. And when people find out, then you're ruined. So I thought that was really interesting. And I had a in our patron book club, we had a um, one of our patrons is um, Irish and grew up in England when um, it was not a good thing to be Irish. And he was talking about how he remembered as a kid when he would open his mouth and start speaking, then suddenly people would treat him differently, where they treated him fine at first, but then when they discovered he this is this is who he was, they, they, they responded differently to him. So I think it's interesting how it's also an exploration of like the other in plain sight. Yeah, except, you know, with an accent, you can train yourself out of an accent. And being Irish, you still have the benefit of usually being white, even if you have an Irish accent. Um, it's interesting because I didn't pick up on the queerness until I forgot the other origins name, the one that leads the calm that they wind up in where they ha- where she finally does have a kid with the the pirate guy, right? Yeah, alabaster, no, alabaster, and Ion. Ion- I cannot the, pronounce his name. The, the, the sex pirate. <laughs> yes. The sex, that, I'm going to text Nora and say that. Like, you know your character in this book. He's now the sex pirate, just so you know. Um, but, you know, that was the first very clear, other than... Um, th- I'm going to call these characters all the wrong names now because it's jumbled in my brain. But Tonky? Tonky. You know, we get an early glimpse that Tonky is trans, but it's not a big thing. It's just like, oh, cool. Okay. 
and then we move on. You know, it's not a big thing. There's like two mentions of it, and this is who who she is. Yeah, but what I'm I'm not saying what I'm not saying though is I'm not talking about literal queer characters. I'm talking no, about I understand. Around, okay, okay, I see. No, I understand. I'm just okay. saying for me. I didn't see any hint of queerness in that sense and could make that same allegory because the person who wrote the book is black and a woman and cisgendered. I'm black and a woman and cisgendered. So for a lot of those things, I'm just like, this is life. This is making it. This is struggling in a world that doesn't want you to exist, basically. So I had a very different read on that um, about hiding hiding in plain sight. The way I read it, and Nora will laugh if she hears this, is we're both Dragon Age fans. And it really made me think of the Mage Templar conflict in Dragon Age. How the Origins are taken away and put in this academy. Mages are taken away and put into a circle. Except in Dragon Age, they're kept in the circle. They have no use. Which sounds really bad, but they're dehumanized. They have no use. They're kept in the circle and treated as other and inhuman their whole lives until they die or escape or become tranquil. And I saw that same kind of parallel with the origins. And this origin that we follow has lived now three lives that we get to see. And all of it's tragic. And I thought the irony of her doing all this and hunting down her husband when she had done literally the same thing herself. And she has that moment with Alabaster. And it's like, you spent all this time hunting your husband for killing Uche. Right. But you did the same thing in your calm when when the Guardians finally came for all of you. Mm-hmm. And not only that, she did that, and she also, partially in self-defense, but she, I mean, as far as we know, her husband has killed one person, where she has actually literally destroyed one calm and in self-defense killed... Uh, people were trying to kill her at her second con, but also the one of the few people who actually sympathized with her and and was yep. her, you know, um, you know, giving her support, yep. and so that she had in many ways has far more blood on her hands, and also she destroyed that whole, also again partially self defense of the the com the harbor com, yep. uh, so, um, but I think that's the thing that a lot of people, uh, when they are, uh put in these no-win situations will kind of, again, dissociate, right? And say, mm-hmm. okay, this is that person. They did that thing, <laughs> right? And I'm yeah. this person. <laughs> like, that was, that was the me that had to do that to survive. Now I've put that away in a box, and now I'm this other person. Like Tonky, who followed her for, what, 30 years? Something and, like that, yeah. And had her tracked for 30 years. And it's like, you know, the fact that they basically got disowned and quietly sent to go study at university, but they tracked her for 30 years. And that's, that's a little creepy. Sure. Sure. And it's interesting though, because it's the, it's, it's incredibly creepy. It, it speaks to a weird, um, because she's a part of this leadership cast, right? A weird Mm -hmm. sense of ownership, but yet she's also still portrayed as one of the most sympathetic characters in the text, right? And so what are we supposed to make of that, right? This is a power imbalance, but also it's a sympathetic character, right? Yeah, she's a she's a pathetic character. And I, you know, not that it can happen now, but I wonder what would have happened if she'd been attacked by the by the Kirk 
Krakusa or something. Yeah, the Krakusas. Yeah, yeah. The the animals that are fine until there's a season. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, well, what if that Krakusa had made lunch out of you, though? Where could the story have gone? And would it, is it, did she basically have plot armor to survive that moment? Mm -hmm. What other, now you've been, you've read this, uh, at, you read it initially as this is your, uh, something that's coming out that's exciting. This is uh, Mm -hmm. my friend has worked with. You've also now, associated with it professionally and mm-hmm. now you've just reread it for the podcast um so how has it changed for you this text over those multiple rereads i think i picked up on a lot of the subtle character stuff that i missed entirely the first time around um also just again when i read it initially it was on release and rereading it now with what's going on in the world and the kind of selfishness of the comms made me really think about the fact of people who are doing everything they can to protect themselves and theirs, but not anyone else where it's like a doggy dog world. And I'm like, Ooh, that's too real right now. That, that kind of hit home. And, you know, it just made me also think of a lot of interactions I've had in my life, dealing with bureaucracy and just trying to survive. So a lot of that, I mapped a lot of things I've dealt with since this book came out up until this reread two things I've dealt with and I'm like, Oh, I get it. And then when I realized this is all the same character, I'm like, Oh, this is like stages of her existence. And I feel it even more deeply, especially as Demaya, when her mother was giving her away and that coldness and the, this is for everyone's good and you're not a person and we don't care about you, but also that fear of the child of her as a child because of something she can't control. And that's one thing that's really cool about being able to return to pieces like this, because we bring ourselves to everything we, to any art we experience, whether it's literature, film, music, whatever, we bring our experiences to it and we experience it through our own personal lens, which is, you know, how, like how you as a black cis woman reading a a book by a black cis woman, you really resonated with what felt to you like her direct intentions where for me as a queer cis white man you know i picked up a lot on the hiding in plain sight stuff because Mm -hmm. that really resonated with me and with rick and our our patron book club you know he's somebody who had a lived experience of experiencing prejudice because of how he sounded that that also really resonated with him as well so i think it's really cool that like we can all kind of come to a text like this and bring our experiences to it and also we can return to a text like this 10, 15, 20 years later mm-hmm. and have a have a new, renewed experience with it with our own new life experiences interjected onto it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I've, I'd be really curious as as to how like younger readers, because you know, like I'm I'm almost 50, and you know, Nora and I are close in age. She actually maybe, I don't think she's 50 yet, but you know, like we're close in age and seeing like just the things that our life experiences how that kind of informs the way in which we see the world or someone in their twenties or even teens picking up this book, how they would see those things, especially someone who was born in the last five, 10 years, picking this book up 10, 15 years later in university, how that's going to resonate for them or not. Are they going to think, Oh, surely this is made up. No one acts this way, but the people in these books, while it is a fantasy made up setting, the people in these books are people we've all interacted with in some way or another. Mm-hmm. 
even the people who are the let's say frankly the worst of the worst which is the guardians right yeah. they're still def- they're still deformed by this experience in the same way we often hear about for example um uh the rural you know the prisons that are set in rural communities like mm-hmm. the prison guard is still in the prison 24 hours you know 20 hours yeah. a day i mean they have a power you know but they're still in a, a shithole <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, i mean their their <laughs> lot in life is to guard the supposedly worst of us from becoming monsters right. and mm-hmm. even the the lore that is passed down in world reminded me of the things that i was taught growing up because i was raised catholic um, and the whole, you're condemned, you have to basically spend eternity atoning for everything you've done before you were even born. Mm-hmm. And that just made me think of the, the stone, and I'm still not sure what stone eaters do. I'm sure I'll get that when I reread this, the next book in the series. But, you know, the way in which the origins are condemned before they even know they've got these powers made me just think of a lot of the ways people not commodify, they weaponize biblical verses and things oh, yeah. in there. You know, yeah. I I used to be a lunch lady in Chicago public schools, and I had someone tell me that slavery was in the Bible and it was okay. And I was like, please bring a Bible tomorrow and show me where it is. Please show right. me. And right. Of course, they couldn't. Yeah. And that uh, makes a very smart point, because one of the things that's con- uh, referred to several times in this text, because, you know, they have the stone lore, Mm-hmm. And then I think it's Alabaster before we know it's even Alabaster mentioning that it was originally written in stone so that people would see it and not be able to forget it. Yeah. But now we have these missing tablets, right? Or people yeah. deliberately suppressed tablets so that we have this incomplete knowledge, which is therefore now used to justify this oppression, this, yep. uh, you know, violence upon, you know, and that any amount of violence is ne- is necessary and justifiable as long as there's a survival element to these comms. We can even sacrifice 80% of the comms as long as something survives past one of these fifth seasons to, you know, regrow the world, right? And so yeah. you can you can uh, justify any number of horrible things in the name of survival and the greater good, you know? What I also really like about this, though, is N.K. Jemison doesn't give us some, like, some Pat Tolkien, like, this is good and this is evil. And in in this world, we can understand why each group feels and acts the way that they do. The people who are terrified of the origins, we understand why. You get an origin who doesn't know how to control their power, and your entire state is ripped apart and destroyed. So, of course, People are going to be terrified of that. And then we've got the origins who, of course, we don't want them to be experiencing all of the the horrific um, that we don't want them to be to be forced into these camps or to be murdered on site just because of who they are, which they have no control over. So, of course, we understand that as well. And then we've got the guardians who they believe what they believe because they think they're keeping the world safe from this. So I really like the um, like the moral complexity that she introduces to this story by not having it be like these people are evil and they eat babies and we're good. And we, you know, we save people from drowning or whatever. It's not this like clear cut black and white thing. Yeah, because I feel like the Guardians are pretty much, I read them as soldiers who are like, but I'm just following orders. And, you know, the the, the Guardian that follows our character through this whole thing, it's like, he, I feel like he's he's almost more like a Knight Templar where he feels like it's his holy given duty. 
Mm-hmm. He just doesn't quite say it that way. Like, even when yeah. he breaks her hand on the road after he's taken her from home. And it's just like, that is like some Stockholm Syndrome stuff. Of like, you broke your hand and he keeps talking about how he loves her. And when she encounters him again and they, they have conflict. Or, I'm sorry, not when they encounter each other at the, at the con for the last time. But when the girl breaks in and gets her in trouble and he has to kill the other guardian. And there's this, this is a man that took you from home, from everything that you knew and loved before you knew you had these powers that broke your hand in the first 24 hours of meeting you, but Mm -hmm. you still love him and go to him for comfort. What kind of Stockholm syndrome bullshit is this? Right. Yeah. Do you know if, uh, and Jay Jameson was had watched the first uh, Star Wars trilogy. It really reminds me of all the the Jedi stuff in the first Star Wars trilogy. Oh, I'm if sure. it had been a dark side version of it, you know. <laughs> so. Oh, I'm sure she has. I think, and I'd have to go back and check like one of her Patreon videos. But I'm pretty sure she has like a a stuffed Darth Vader somewhere, like in the scene behind in her office behind her when she does her Patreon videos. Yeah, and you're right. And it's it's what's his name? It's um, I want to say it's uh, Draca, but it's not um, Shaft. Shaffa, Shaffa, yeah, Shaffa, yeah. uh, and you wonder is Shaffa um, completely believing this? Is he cynical about it? I don't think he's actually quite cynical, but I think he actually does believe this, which makes it almost in I some ways so more too. horrible. Than, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, so. yeah. So then, transitioning this to the gaming side of the conversation here, uh, the this this trilogy is officially listed in the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons Appendix E the list of things to read for inspiration for your gaming. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, we're, well, I, I want to talk about the game you're developing for Green Ronin in a minute here. But first, this is listed as something to read for inspiration for your Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition gaming. Uh-huh. I'm curious, uh, how how applicable do you feel like this book is to somebody who is creating a campaign setting for 5th edition? I think looking at the way the characters are portrayed, the way comms are built, because you could say instead of a comm, it's a village or it's a city or it's a town, you know, instead of an origin being like origin could be a a mage, but with a very specific kind of magic or thinking about, you know, the ways in which if you could literally manifest the earth and the water and the air around you, what could you do with that? Because we have spells in 5th edition, but the power of the the power level of an origin is something that I'd have to be a 20 level, 20th level spellcaster to do, or higher in DD. But I think looking at the world building, the way everyone seems so real, and also just how it takes people to work together and create a good team, that's something where you can take bits and pieces of it. Now, obviously not lifted a whole cloth because it's this setting that she's made up and D and D is, is high fantasy. But I think the, the ways in which characters are portrayed, the way in which the world is, is told can easily be an inspiration for someone. So we, in this story, we, we have groups of people traveling together. Um, they're not quite adventurers, yeah. but like we've got people who are together by necessity trying to survive and make things work. But you're right, they're, they're, um, the origins in the story have a ton of power, and the other folks don't. So 
traditionally in Dungeons and Dragons, we don't usually have like one 18th level character running around with a bunch of third level characters. So I'm curious, as somebody who's in the process of kind of designing a game around this, what how would how would how are you can kind of conceptualizing is is this going to be a um is this going to be a game of just origins can you play a variety of people and how do you kind of balance those different power imbalances um you know without giving too much away we're not really i'm trying to think of the last version of the game i read um we're ideally not giving people ways to be a fully trained out in the world Imperial origin, because you'd just be too powerful. It just wouldn't be fun. You could go and wave a hand and kill everyone in a comm and you're done. You know, you'd be just way too powerful. So if you really, really, really want to be an origin, you would probably be fresh out of the fulcrum, maybe with one or two rings, or you've escaped the fulcrum or you're an untrained origin. Um, but you wouldn't be someone like, you know, Essen or whatever, whatever name we call her by the end of the book. Um, You wouldn't be someone like her that is wearing four rings, six rings or like Alabaster who's wearing 10 rings. Cause he's an anomaly, even in the book to have have a ring on each finger. So you're mostly calm people. You could be castless or calmless. Being an origin would be, you'd have to come up, at least if I was running it, you'd have to come up with a really good reason to be an origin just running around the world. Gotcha. Is your, um, and again, uh, I know that the game's not released, so the, and it's development, so there's a lot to talk about, but, but there's a f- couple frameworks here, but the, the overall the premise of this book, or at least a series, is either the apocalypse is impending, mm-hmm. is happening, you know, or is happening, but, or has happened. Or has happened, but people don't even populace. realize it, you know, and it's personal. Um, but that's not normally, I mean, that's just a lot of post-apocalyptic gaming, like Gamma World and whatever. Mm-hmm. But D&D, you know, is generically tends to be a more hopeful genre, for lack of a better word, right? And your, your heroes, you can make a difference in the world, at least, again, like generically speaking. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, do, would you frame this game as there's some level of normalcy first? Or it's already right there tickling people and people are like already kind of like, oh, geez, something is about, you know, about to jump off. Um, I think it would depend on kind of A, how people decide to run the game. But in terms of a lot of the pre-gen content that people get is a day in the life of the comm kind of thing of, you know, let's say if my apartment building was a comm and we discover, oh, someone's stealing water, they're stealing food or someone is someone went out and didn't come back from let's say a water gathering mission so things like that i mean there there will be kind of hey the, there's there's a season starting what are we going to do um or a season is happening what are we going to do but there's also kind of slice of life here get used to the rules moments goodbye kitty mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes i had one of my one of my kitties was just visiting us no that makes a lot of sense that's that's really um uh, both to the rules and the setting itself, right? Because yeah. you have to have some sense of normalcy before you can completely blow it up. Yeah, and, and and you also just can't have constant terror and constant horror because as a player or as someone running a game, 
that level of emotional highs is hard to maintain. Yeah. And it becomes that thing. If everything is weird, nothing is weird. If everything is terrible, then it's not terrible. Like we, we, we need to have contrast yeah. in order for us to feel these things properly. But let's say there is somebody who is really excited about the Green Ronin game that's coming out, but they just they just they really want to play in a broken earth setting until then. What and 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 they said to you, Tanya, what system should I use to play my own homebrew broken earth system in until the Green Ronin one comes out? Uh, what would you recommend? Uh nothing because I mean, I'm sh- there could be someone who's made a homebrew. I don't know. And contractually, I prob- no one should tell me. Um, I honestly don't know. I would say, if anything, maybe the Age system, which is the 3D6 system that Fantasy Age and Blue Rose and other mm-hmm. systems that Green Run In um, has published used. Or, you know, if you absolutely positively must do this before the official game is out. Because I feel like I shouldn't say this because we're working on the game. Um, Powered by the Apocalypse and and maybe, again, for legal and NDA reasons, do not tell me if you've done this. Do not tweet at me and tell me you've done this. I cannot know this exists. Or don't tell Green Ronin, because I don't have to tell you, and then I'll have to tell Nora, and it'll be a sad day for everybody. <laughs> um, you know, pick one of the, the chapters from the book and kind of go from there, like that scenario, and, and run from there. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this, if someone really wants to do that, game design is hard and balancing dice rolls and doing this is going to be harder than you think if you want to homebrew it. Well, and for the record, I'm not talking about oh, I, creating oh, I know, a game. I know, I know. I'm saying using this setting in an existing game, because while I was reading it, I was thinking like, oh, you could maybe do this with Numenera. Ooh, I didn't even think about Numenera. But it, but I think and you know and I'm not obviously no one here is telling anyone to go do this please don't go do this, but you know for an existing like here's this system here's this story, I would say either Powered by the Apocalypse or now that you said it Numenera because I wasn't thinking about it, and just kind of go forth and and do that. Right. Yeah, and have fun with it until the proper product comes out. <laughs> And then give Green Ronin your money and support <laughs> the product. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I mean, this brings up just the broad issue of just the general challenges of adapting any sort of official property. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, I know that Green Ronin has a house system, which is the age system. Um, you know, other companies like Modiphius have their 2D, 2D20 system. Yep. Um, what kind of mandates, like when you're doing that, you know, are you comfortable working with? And like, you know what? No, this is too much. This is like me in straight jacket. If you're asking me to do this kind of work and, and you know, there's other better people to do this kind of stuff, you know, um, even if it's like a property that you really, really love, you know, and it's like, I really want to work on this. But if you're telling me I have to use this system and I know it's not the right system or, you know, whatever, those kind of things like that. Um, That's hard because I haven't really worked with anyone who's done that. Um, and... The good thing with Green Ronin is that we sat down and said, okay, here's the experience. Like, is it more narrative driven? Is it more combat driven? What system is going to fit better? You know, obviously, if it's a system that's not theirs, it's going to be harder because you have to license it. Um, But no one's really mandated, no, you must do this, and it's the only way. Because there are systems that exist where it's like you might sit down and go, I want to tell the story of this calm and like from the beginning to when the season happens. 
but rolling like 80 dice is not going to work out because it's just too much to do. And we know it's more narrative, Mm -hmm. but also D20 may or may not work because at that point, just skin it for D&D. But, you know, knock on wood, nobody I've worked with has ever been like, no, this is the only way to do it. Right. Now you mentioned uh, PBTA because that was one of the ones that came up for me. It's like, oh, this might work. The other one that I thought would be interesting since you've mentioned this based on, and we hadn't even talked about this in the book club, Jeff, that centering the game around the calm rather than the individual characters, um, a quiet year would be an interesting way to run something, mm. you know, you know, or do not let us die in the um, cold of this winter. Again, it's one of those little indie things like about like looking at the calm as a whole and there's little individual you know, characters that move might move around, but we're looking at, okay, as you say, uh, it's so important, right? Stockpiling, making sure you have enough, the right balance of people in the comm yeah. to support the comm, uh, even geographically locating where the comm could be. So that could be even almost like a, uh, uh, a parallel game, a board game expansion, you know, settlers, settlers of settlers of the broken earth, <laughs> you know, Yay. board game, you know, um, I'm not saying literally that system, but you know, I mean, I could see that. No, very- I, that was my kind of scrunchy. I'm thinking phase. Mm-hmm. Um, or in just an expansion, but I think that's a, a fascinating thing in and of itself. I mean, it engages a different part of your brain than like, I'm going to be living inside Demaya's skin or one of these other characters, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, having, you know, now worked with this and, and, and still being in the process of this, what has that also said, hey, you know, now that I've been a designer and working on this, what other challenges do I want to take on as a designer, whether it's dealing with properties or thinking about systems and that kind of stuff like that? What, what, is, what has that brought forward for you in terms of that? Um, mostly just work on Into the Motherlands because making your own system is way more challenging than I thought. Um, I think by the time folks get to hear this conversation, we'll be in, we will be in, um, second draft red lines, but also we'll have mechanics locked down by then because designing is hard work and, you know, Mm -hmm. people think it's easy, but even with a D20 system that's been around for 50 years, you still have to think about balance because I've homebrewed stuff where it still wasn't balanced and didn't come out right. Um, and, but just also, are you telling a compelling story? Are you, are you going to get people who just want to run the equivalent of a dungeon in your game? Are you going to get people who just want to go out and, you know, for the for lack of a better way to phrase it, murder hobo everything, but in a calm instead of in a dungeon? Um, right. You know, how do you, how do you give people a fun experience without making it so easy that there's no challenge? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a good point, too, because in kind of traditional Dungeons and Dragons, you've got lots of monsters you're fighting. And here there is no there's no real like this is the monster we're fighting. Right. The monster is is your planet and, you know, possibly other origins that have gone evil. Right. Yeah. Although I guess the frame you could give that, obviously, it's it's not perfect, but is a season's about to get underway. So the Kirkusas start acting weird because they've been friendly before yeah. and now they're monsters. Yeah. And that's when you get to murder hobo, right? Because that's when you're, if you're calmless and you're trying to, you know, figure out how you can survive and you don't know how long the season's going to be. Do I raid other comms? Do I try to set up my own comm? Right. You know, and all that. So that would be closer fit to the sort of traditional, are we going to murder hobo or not? And so I think you could still use, if that's your group, you could still say, hey, okay, Here's where we could go, but then I'm going to open up and make it much more meaningful. But here's here's what you think you want. I'm going to give you that. But yeah. okay, now we're going to, you know. 
Uh, but it's a big challenge. I mean, there's, there's, uh, and this specifically, this particular narrative asks a lot of you, right? And, and are you willing to, you can, you can engage with it as just a very exciting, dangerous, dark setting, or you can, you know, all the other stuff that comes with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think a lot of it too, is that so many people were raised slash cut their teeth on D and D as their first RPG experience that the habits we pick up as D&D players go with us in other games. And D&D can be very combat heavy. And so even like with Motherlands, with this, with other things that I've played, it's like this, this dissonance of getting people to think more narratively or think about, do I have, just because I see something, do I have to go try to kill it? Yeah. And just because I have a sword in my, in my equipment and I've got a skill called strength. Does that mean that I have to, does that have to be my solution for everything? Yeah. You know, you, you could try talking. Do you have speak with animals? Cause I've had players literally team dire wolves rather than fight them. And also, even if you don't have speak with animals, you've got a charisma stat. Yeah. 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 And, and that's uh, you know, it's right here in the book, right? Cause they're trying to deal with the uh, stone eaters and like, they're this, other thing maybe we'll find out that they're not but that's this thing and then and and i like also that slow reveal that oh there's actually factions within the guardians there's factions within the origins and yep. even the stone eaters might have factions oh that's that's more than i thought that was going on you know uh, well yeah it's like i reread the prologue today and th- at one point somebody w- i was asking the stone eaters and they're like are are, are the stone eaters going to take over our, uh, take over the earth and they're like no most of us don't want that right which implies that some of them do it's like <laughs> most of us but then there's this little group um <laughs> but it was but it also made me think of things like you know you know in rereading the book cuz i highlighted a bunch of passages and when alabaster and cyanite are are having this conversation about being seen as human and don't you ever want to be just human that's the kind of stuff where how do you translate that to a game session or a game setting and have it be done respectfully and well because we still have to argue about black elves and orcs and all of this stuff even now so how do you have that because I, I really don't want to say empathy for these characters in that sense, but how do you how do you create a game based off a property written by a, a black person where these characters are very clearly, you know, in, in many cases, they're described as dark skin, light skin, they're not white. And so people will bring those biases they have and all of their assumptions to the table when they sit down to play this game. So how do you, how do you design for that? How do you solve for that? Yeah. And that's a, that's a big question and it's a big one to tackle. It's like with um, Harlem Unbound, the, um, the Lovecraft setting, you know, it's like, this is, this is a black person who is writing a black setting for what is probably going to be predominantly white people playing it. Um, so it's 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 a tricky thing to figure out as both a game designer, but also as a player. Like I, I I frequently encounter white people who, when they are playing in a game where it's not presumed to be white, there's this like, how do I do this respectfully? How do I do this without 
how do I do this where I feel like I'm being authentic, but I don't feel like I'm re- relying on stereotypes? And it's a very complicated thing to figure out for, I think, all parties involved. Let me rephrase that. For all parties who give a shit. For the people who don't give a shit, they're just going to be dicks and do whatever they want. Oh, yeah. But for the, for the rest of us, it's a complicated thing to figure out. Yeah. You know, and I'm encountering that a lot with, you know, motherlands and just the can I even play this if I'm white? And I'm like, do you have $60? Then yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think um, uh, this is already acts of imagination, right? So mm-hmm. if you can imagine yourself as a green screened orc or, uh, a, you know, an elf or halfling, you should be able to put yourself in these other situations Just with a little bit more caution because you're dealing with things that have resonances in the real world. But if you, you know, if you have a problem, you know, you can't even play, you know, an elf or a halfling, then, you know, I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. You know, if you can't even put yourself in that, you know, out of your skin, then you're sort of already in the wrong hobby. And I don't want to say that as a gatekeeping situation. I'm just saying, like, uh, you know, obviously everyone's going to have get better at these things as they go along and make some mistakes as they go along. Right. And, and you know, say, listen, try it out. Uh, this is maybe where uh, uh, session zero and, and safety tools and all that come into play. If that's part of your table culture, and even if it's not, since this is now again uncharted territory for a lot of you, this might be a time to investigate those as well, so that everybody is you know in a space where they can both express themselves but also not cause harm. You know? Yeah, and session zero, you know, didn't exist when I started playing D anD. d That wasn't a thing people thought about. But it should be there, especially with something like this or with any game where anyone is stepping into either a new system, a new setting, and just in general, especially now with streaming games, because if there's a bunch of people watching you play this game and something happens, it's all there. Not that you should do this if no one's watching you or you're at a home game, but you should think about the humans at the table as well as just this is a game and I want to have fun. Sure, that makes a lot of sense because especially you're in a, a streamed game or you're putting yourself out there, and then people are going to make all these assumptions mm-hmm. about you um, based on your gameplay, but not seeing all the other aspects of you, and that happens all the mm-hmm. time in any in any public setting. <laughs> but but it's there in a stream, and it's there on the record, and it doesn't go away. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, uh, we are probably it's probably a good time for us to start wrapping things up. So, Tanya, do you have any final thoughts about the fifth season that we didn't get a chance to get to? Um, the characters are wonderful and complex. I love the world building. And, you know, it was, like I said, it was a harder read than I expected just because of kind of the state of the world right now. And the final line, you know, obviously spoiler, when Alabaster asked if you've heard of the moon, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh boy. (laughs) Well, I guess this is, you know, getting reinstalled to the Kindle. So... Because I was just like, I can't, if I start reading the second book, I will get it really confused for this show. So that is going to be my, my carrot on a stick. You've done some work. You can have an hour to read. (laughs) perfect and for our listeners who really want to follow you on social media keep abreast of things that you're working on how and where can they do that and also do you have projects you want to tell them about that are coming up um let's see so everywhere online except for my coffee account is cyphertyr c-y-p-h-r o-f-t-y-r i really had to think about that um and 
the biggest things are uh, Ravel's War Deep comes back May 29th and um, not doing SDCC. If you are someone who will be at TwitchCon Amsterdam, I will be there. Uh, voice mods bring us out. And mainly Black Dice Society, TwitchCon Amsterdam, and I will be at Gen Con this year as part of the Writer's Symposium and also doing a lot of the BIPOC activities. Very cool. Right. I feel like we should have a whole other show with you talking about uh, Black and Norse, uh, since, it's, since this is your, your handle for it, and you had mentioned yeah. it at the very beginning, but it just didn't come up. But it's it's going to have to be a whole other conversation, which will be an amazing one. Yeah, we, um, we have so. to talk about the poetic edits. Yeah. So, so next time we have something Norse-themed, we'll definitely try to get you back on for that. So okay. <laughs> Perfect. And our patrons get to uh, vote on which books we are covering. And our patron results are in for episodes 127 and 128. For episode 127, we will be covering Robert E. Howard's Conan the Conqueror. For 128, we're covering Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. And when this episode drops, we are going to post our poll for episode 131. And the books that we're going to be voting on are going to be based on the 2021 Hugo nominees, with an asterisk here being if the book that's nominated is one later in the series, we're going to be reading the first in the series so that we're not hopping in the middle of a series. But the books that we are going to be voting on for episode 131 are Arcady Martins' A Memory Called Empire, Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, uh, Rika Aoki's Light from Uncommon Stars, P. Jolly Clark's A Master of Jin, Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary, and Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun. Normally we have four nominations, but it'll be six this time around for you to choose from. Also, our patrons are able to join us before these recordings uh, for their own little patron book club. And today we are joined by Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, and Rick Byrne. Thank you for joining uh, today. That was a lot of fun. We'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our recent uh, new patrons, Ivan Paul, Ryan Houck, and Matt Young. Thank you for becoming patrons. And we're also going to give a shout out to a few of our randomly selected patrons here. So thank you to Frank Maybe, James D'Alessio, Jonathan Nickel, Michael, Caleb Hirth, Patrick Pilgrim, Brian Rumble, JC and Aldine, and Sam Watson, thank you for your support. And Hoy, where can folks find us on the internet? All right. So if you want to drop us a note, it's always you can always use Appendix and Book Club at gmail.com. Um, if you would like to uh, rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as iTunes, it really does help people find us. And we're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. We look forward to hearing from you. All right. Perfect. And Tanya, thanks for being on the show today. It was really fun. You're welcome. This was fun. I, I don't get to do this kind of stuff very often. Usually when I go on podcasts, it's like, talk about gaming, talk about how much it sucks to be a woman in games or black in games or queer in games or all three. And I'm like, can I talk about something fun? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for talking about some fun stuff with us and some heavy stuff with us today, too. You're welcome. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. It was, it was fun. I'll, I'll come back anytime. Perfect. We'll take you up on that. Okay. There you go. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>